Hello, it's your host, Kat Walsh, and you're listening to another episode of Trip On This. This podcast is for mature audiences and is not suitable for young children. Trip On This is intended for entertainment purposes only, and we do not condone the use of illegal substances. Enjoy the show. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Trip On This. I had such a wonderful time speaking with my next guest, Manesh Gurn. Manesh is a PhD candidate in neuroscience at McGill University and has written over a dozen publications on psychedelics, neuroscience, neuroplasticity, among other things. What makes this episode actually so much fun and just wonderful from the beginning to the end was not only all of the scientific aspect that we cover and we do, but also we end it with such a beautiful conversation around just the philosophy of psychedelics and life and honestly how to live our best life beyond just the psychedelics. It was such a beautiful way to end it. And I really really got to connect with him at the end. And I think you guys will too. I know just stuff that I'm passionate about is just how can we all reach our our highest potential, right? In this life, we all have so much untapped potential. And that's what Manesh and I talk about on this episode. We also get into things like what is the default mode network? This is a term we hear a lot in the psychedelic space. So he gets into what that is and why it's important. We talk about psychedelics and physical healing, We talk about psychedelics and the mystical side of things, how researchers are looking at that, how they're measuring it. We talk about what's exciting him for the future of psychedelics, what he thinks is underserved. Really, we covered a lot of really great territory in a relatively short episode. So definitely enjoy this. Listen to the end because we really, it's it's a multidimensional this episode and I think you guys are going to enjoy it. Few things before the episode begins. If you're not following me on socials, please do so at trip on this underscore pod. Again, that's at trip on this underscore pod for Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, and backslash trip on this pod for Facebook. If you do follow me, message me, say hello. It makes me feel good that I'm just connecting to more and more of you. So reach out, say hi, I'll say hi back. And of course, if you are enjoying this show, send it out to your friends and family, give it a like, give it a thumbs up, rate it, do all the things. It is so helpful for me to grow the podcast and get the word out. And with that, please enjoy this next episode with Manesh Gurn. Manesh, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to Trip On This. Thanks so much. Thanks for the invitation. I am so excited to talk about psychedelic science with you. I'm excited to talk about why you're passionate about psychedelics. I'm excited to hear about the future of psychedelic research and science. It is safe to say I am excited. I am excited to talk to you. Um, Let's start with your passion first. What, how long have you, when did you decide that you wanted to work in psychedelics, work in psychedelic research and what really called you into the space? Yeah, totally. It's been a long time. So I think initially, uh, my first interest came through actually a book uh, in high school, actually. And I think I was like 17 or something. Uh, during that time, I got into kind of Eastern meditation traditions and Zen Buddhism and this kind of thing. And I was reading a bit about that. Um, and there was this dude at uh, my school, he was like a career counselor slash 
I don't know, just the interesting old guy who worked there. Yeah. And he um, kind of turned me on to different books. And I eventually discovered uh, Stan Groff, mm -hmm. who is a kind of pioneering LSD psychiatrist. He did thousands of sessions, you know, from 60s to 70s, early 70s. And he's written multiple, like, uh, probably like half a dozen books, at least. He's like in his 80s now. And anyway, I read his book and he just detailed in there his map of the psychedelic experience that he made over 4,000 sessions. Wow. So 4,000 sessions of meticulous notes and details of what these people were going through. High dose sessions, like we're talking like four, four to 600 micrograms. Of wow. Okay. They're going there. And he really documented what he, what people were going through and had this map of the different types of experiences that you can go through. Um, and there were like, you know, aesthetic visual, uh, experiences. There were psychodynamic unconscious, uh, kind of memory experiences. There were, and then there were like what he calls transpersonal experiences, which are mystical experiences and experiences beyond the individual self, self kind of thing. And I was like, you know, I'd been told up until that point, you take some mushrooms or LSD and you go crazy and et cetera. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's no value in it. And now I'm hearing that people are having these experiences that were usually reserved for some meditator who spent their life meditating or had some hardcore mystical practices. Yeah. And they seem to allow us to enter these mystical states, um, you know, very easily when we don't really deserve them. We didn't earn them, uh, but they seem to access, allow us to access that. And that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, you know, even more broadly, just how they can alter our experience in such a variety of different ways, depending on the person and the context and all this. And it is fascinating me. I was like, you know, w these are totally unacknowledged, underappreciated, mm -hmm. uh, and they can do such profound experiences with potential relevance for helping people find greater meaning in their life, mm -hmm. um, for overcoming, uh, you know, maladaptive negative patterns, uh, and being more present and all these things. Yeah. And so then, uh, you know, I was like, okay, I want to study this. I want to help destigmatize them. I want to bring more awareness to them and see what their potential really is. And then from that, I, you know, I read a whole bunch of books about the history of that era and everything else. And I just became enamored with it and fascinated by it. And then, you know, yeah, step-by-step, step, I, uh, you know, decided to go the neuroscience route because I got introduced to a research lab at UBC, University of British Columbia in Canada, uh, Vancouver. And in that lab, they were doing research on mind-wandering, daydreaming, meditation, mm. very airy concepts, mm -hmm. but like doing it in a rigorous way. And I was like, this is perfect. This is what I want to do with psychedelics. And so, uh, yeah, basically there's a lot more I can go into, but like after being inspired by that lab, I decided to pursue my PhD in neuroscience with the hope to, again, destigmatize these substances and uh, study them from a rigorous perspective on wow. how they work in the brain and how they can be used. Wow. Thank you so much. And just thank you. Like, honestly, I always, I've been thinking about the researchers a lot and like the science that's going into this. And even though these compounds have been around for a long time, or certainly the natural derivatives have been around for a long time, there's all because of all the research that that you guys are doing and it's having this moment again where it can be destigmatized and it can come out to the public and and potentially be the healing that i think it's going to be for a lot of people i had no idea about stongroff about the three different categories of trips and that makes a lot of sense from just having I guess, experience varieties of trips like that from like that kind of colorful version to like a straight up mystical experience. Um, but I can see, of course, like it, it, it was, so it's now not, maybe not as underserved as it was, but of course, like there's something magnificent happening to the brain that just people were like, Meh. so let's get into a little bit more of the science of it. Okay. So 
The default mode network is something that we hear very often when it comes to psychedelic research and science. For those listening who have never heard of that term, first off, what is the default mode network? Yeah, totally. So, okay, so we can understand our brain as a whole set of brain regions which interact with each other, right? And um, and then these brain regions actually group into group with each other into clusters uh, or networks or subnetworks. Mm-hmm. And so, one particular cluster of regions in our brain that activate and interact together uh, is a default mode network. And this is actually one of the well, the network that's most involved in a lot of the aspects of our thinking and behavior that are most human. Like they define us as humans, as in other primates, other animals uh, don't really have these behaviors. Got it. Uh, okay. So they don't, other animals, any, any other animal, but us does not have a default mode network. No, they have it, but it's not nearly as developed. Got it. Okay. So like the, the parts of the brain and humans that are most expanded compared to other animals are the ones that overlap with the default mode network. Okay. Largely speaking, like broadly speaking. Got it. And so this network is involved in stuff like our ability to abstract away from the present moment and think about the future or remember the past or to think about what other people are thinking about. Um, it's also involved in our kind of tendency to say, you know, certain things are us and certain things are not us. Hmm. We call it the self-referential processing. So basically, it's what defines who we are, like our sense of self. And also our story, our narrative. You know, I was this person last week. I'm going to be this person in the future. I'm this person now. You know, I'm Manesh with this identity, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. That's all um, primarily uh, underpinned by the Defamo network. Wow. Thank you. And so what is the impact of psychedelics now on the, the default mode network? Why is it important to our healing? Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, I should start by saying that I feel like the emphasis on the default mode network is actually a bit overblown. Okay. And what's interesting is that psychedelics, when they affect the brain, they don't affect just a single network. They affect the entire brain as mm-hmm. a whole. Um, and you're, there are other, there are a variety of other networks in our brain under the most common way of, of parsing it, there's six other networks. So there's seven total. Okay. So default network is just one of them. Perhaps it's one of the most interesting. I think it's the most interesting. Interesting. Um, but the other ones are very important for our experience of the world and our behavior. And psychedelics, they affect um, basically all the networks in our brain to a large degree. Um, some of them sometimes more than default network, depending mm. on the data set, depending on the drug. And so, you know, by looking at how the brain changes under the influence of a psychedelic uh, alone, there's nothing that says the default mode network is special. Mm. However, you know, people assume like, oh, psychedelics alter the way we think. They make us enter these dreamlike states where everything is vision, uh, vivid, and we have different relationships to our thoughts. It must be the default mode network because it's usually involved in these things. So it's that kind of inference where we say like, oh, it's probably the default mode network. And if we look at the data, there has been some studies, like only like some, not all of them, mm-hmm. showing a link between the default mode network and what's called ego dissolution. Mm-hmm. Well, these are experiences in which our sense of being a, a distinct person uh, who's distinct from the environment and from other people and that have a history, that has a history and uh, persistent time, that kind of goes away. We kind of forget all okay. sense of who we are. We, we don't identify with this body anymore. We feel like we're merging with everything. And, you know, that's the experience. Um, and so people have, studies have linked that to the Moon Network. And this, that was then popularized a lot by people like Michael Pollan in his book mm-hmm. and other people. 
And, you know, this was really jumped on because ego dissolution is a core part of mystical experiences, yeah. which is really important for the therapeutic effects. Yes. Uh, but, but to bring this back, so ego, the DFMO network might be particularly important in the healing effects of psychedelics because it alters uh, a network that encodes a lot of our beliefs and our ways of understanding ourselves in the world. Got um, it. However, the data doesn't necessarily show that uh, very kind of uh, reliably yet. Uh, Got so it. we don't know for sure. Well, I love that's, that's such a, what a great explanation. And it also just adds in again, more of the mystery of psychedelics. Like when you think you kind of, when you think you kind of know, you're like, actually that's not always the case. And there's all these other do- modes and the brain's doing all these things and the way that consciousness works and just the idea of ego dissolution on its own. And I want to get into, I want to kind of save that for everyone. So like everyone listening, we're going to talk about mystical experiences and ego dissolution at the end of it, because that is one of my favorite topics to talk about. And I want to hear it actually from a scientific side, like how you guys are measuring that kind of thing. But this is just going to keep everyone here. Um, Uh, let's talk a little bit though about now, what is some of the research that you're seeing on the horizon that is really exciting you and its potential? Maybe it's something that we haven't heard about a lot, something coming down the pipeline where you're like, this is looking pretty exciting for us. Right. Yeah. So there are a number of things because at the end of the day, our understanding of psychedelics is so little, like we're totally in the very beginnings of research and, you know, a lot of stuff we just don't know. Uh, We have stuff that we think might be true, but we don't really know. And there's a whole uncharted territory. Um, So one thing I think is very interesting is just going deeper into psychedelics and behavior change. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's ideas that psychedelics induce this flexible state of the mind where we're able to see things from a new perspective. Um, but there's been very little research actually looking at, does that lead to lasting behavior change? Mm. Do people change their beliefs in a, in a lasting and important way under psychedelics? Mm-hmm. Uh, is that reliable? And um, what, what's what I'm actually interested in, and this is like, you know, in, in the whole self-development world, uh, a lot of emphasis is put on things like visualization and, you know, power of intention and all this kind of thing. And, and psychedelics really, you know, vivify our imagination, make things mm-hmm. very much more vivid to us in general. So something I'm interested in is like, can we, you know, use a psychedelic to enhance our visualization process mm-hmm. to kind of alter things in our self-image or in our belief structure, or as some people might say, like subconscious reprogramming. Um, can we change our fun- like our underlying beliefs, which are normally hidden from us? Uh, with targeted kind of practices while under a psychedelic. Wow, that would be so exciting. To me, that would be the future. I think of immediately when you were saying that, I think of somebody like a Joe Dispenza who spends his life basically dedicated to that quantum field, as he calls it, that visualization. And yes, then to pair that with a psychedelic experience when you are open to um, seeing things in a new way and seeing yourself in a new way, like that really does feel like the future to me and something I'm, I'm excited to hear that, that you're thinking about that. I know for myself, like psychedelics did have like a lasting behavior. Now it did come from, um, it did come from practice, right? I have a meditative practice and, and visualization and all these things, but that paired really, um, made trip on this actually possible. Like it would actually was, I was able to start visualizing and then also then putting things actually into motion where usually uh the pisces in me would just like daydream forever and then never do anything um i was just kind of i would just stop myself from lack of belief in myself ultimately and that's what it had broken down was that 
that, that self-belief ultimately that I was like, actually, yeah, you're good enough to do this and you should do it. You know, and that is such a massive breakthrough. And it just reminds me, like hearing your story, I'm like, yes. And and to then actually create some kind of a program or a practice that can foster that, that would be everybody needs that, (laughs) in my opinion. No, totally. And I think a lot of people, like you mentioned, Joe Dispenza, a lot of people are turned off by the quantum language, at least academic people, right? Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, that's like, woo, kind of stuff. But what I really want to do is add more credibility to these kinds of things Mm because there's definitely something there. People wouldn't be doing them, uh, you know, all around the world with success, you know, if if it was all nonsense. Right. So I think psychedelics are very well suited to amplify the process and make it more amenable to being studied. Yeah. Um, So I do really want to explore that because... You know, these things are interlinked with stuff like neuroplasticity mm-hmm. and, um, and again, how vividly we can feel as if our goals are already completed, for example, yeah. um, and these kinds of things. So uh, I'm very fascinated in exploring that and, and as a kind of complement to the whole healing aspect of psychedelics. We focus on helping people who are struggling through mental health conditions, which is extremely important and going to be more important over this next decade for sure. Mm -hmm. But then also what about the relatively healthy people who want to live a deeper, more filling and effective life? You know? Yeah. Um, So I'm very interested in that in furthering human potential in very, in various ways. And again, this is very understudied, you know, research wise. Huge. I, the human potential thing is so huge. I talk about that pretty often because again, like I was saying, like that was my journey. And I was like, there's so many people that, I just feel like we're all, we all have so much inner potential, uh, so much untapped potential within us, every single one of us that, um, and it doesn't have to necessarily be through psychedelics, but it is certainly one amazing tool. And I think coming back to like the woo woo side of things and like, I get it. Like, it's great that there is kind of different, uh, thought processes that go into everything. And, but I always, you know, I think about things like the placebo effect and I was like, that is incredible that the placebo effect is kind of consistently working across all fields. And so there is something, there's still just more to explore there. Like why do people think that they're because they think they're healing actually heal? Fascinating stuff. Yeah. It's fascinating. Totally. I feel like psychedelics are a window into that as well, mm-hmm. right? Because like there was this recent article going around media about a guy who can change his pupil size. What? And basically people say that, you know, the pupil size is regulated by your autonomic nervous system. It's basically like regulating your pupil size is like regulating your heart. Like we shouldn't be able to do that. Right. And people are able to. And of course, there's many yogis who can control their blood circulation or some and crazy what? and generate heat within their body and all these things, which are kind of, you know, show the strength of the mind-body connection. Yeah. But it's still not, you know, we don't know how that's happening and it's not acknowledged. And I feel like psychedelics being what they are by amplifying what's going on and allowing us to enter into these weird states where different things are possible mm-hmm. um, can prevent, potentially provide a window into studying them. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's going to make a lot of scientists maybe potentially uncomfortable, but it'll be interesting work for them to be like, okay, let's just dive into some territory that is a little outside of the purview that we all kind of knew and understanding, like you're saying that, that brain body connection. Very cool. Very exciting. Um, are are there any areas that you feel are particularly underserved right now in psychedelic research? Yeah, I think the research to date has really kind of underemphasized integration mm-hmm. and, and also just like um, really testing set and setting. Um, so let me start with integration. So obviously 
you know, you don't, you don't just take a psychedelic and you're automatically healed and you're good for the rest of your life. You know, uh, it's very hard to change your behavior. Everyone knows this. Yeah. Like, habits come back, emotional responses come back. As soon as you're triggered, you know, at a family dinner a week later, all that stuff, that mystical experience is forgotten. And you're just like getting mad at your cousin or whatever. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the oneness is gone. You're like, okay, never mind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and so it's not easy. Right. And so we need to, kind of discover and look into the best ways to solidify that insight and keep it maintained and kind of creating lasting change on the basis of it. I think there's very little research looking at that. Uh, you know, most of the time in the studies, you'll go through the treatment, you'll chat with the therapist uh, or guide a couple of times after, follow up with you. But there's no, in the research context, looking at, oh, what if we, after that, we get them on a particular meditation practice yeah. uh, combined with this journaling or... Uh, or combined with even breath work or alternate, you know, holistic interventions mm -hmm. and this kind of stuff. Um, and I think that's where the future lies, where psychedelics are just one component of a broader set of holistic treatments and interventions, 100%. Um, as opposed to seeing being seen as a panacea where it's just, you know, you do this ayahuasca ceremony and all your traumas are healed in your Buddha for the next, for the rest of your life, right? Yeah, yeah. It would be nice if there was just like a magic pill or a magic potion for that, but there's not, you're absolutely right. Like a, a long-term integrated, even like from a clinical side, like six months, a year to see like, yeah, like, are they going in every week? Like, are they doing those practices? And then are you, are we seeing the changes or even kind of, you know, I would think like combining kind of a macro dose with a micro dose regimen type of thing. Like, do we, is there some kind of a mix between the integration with that is then with like, okay, then a little micro dose. And like, these are the practices that you're doing and, and, and journaling that I had a guest actually who was on, who actually just journaled her, her micro dose journey as well. And just how she felt every day. She just wanted to see what that looks like for her. And the big intentions or goals that she had set weren't necessarily like coming to fruition, but what, what was happening was like little, little things were changing and her, the majorities of her days were a lot better. And as she kind of looked back, instead of looking like day by day, she looked basically at her data, right? Her, the last mm -hmm. like two months. And she saw just this overall increase in such a powerful way of her well being and how then that well being then began to, after a couple months, shift the bigger goals. But what needed to happen first was all of these little, little tiny things that were out of basically alignment for her needed to get reoriented. She needed to basically come back into herself so that she was in a state where she could then handle the big stuff in her life, where she was in a place strong internally, emotionally, you know, that well-being. And so I feel like that could be kind of come back to your point, like such an exciting and definitely the, the future is, is that combination. Like, what are you doing after for the healing? Yeah, totally. And I think it's been avoided a lot because uh, there's a lot of compounds, as the scientists would say, like there's a lot of things that happen after the experience and you can't control for everything because right. like uh, scientists want like very neat environments where you know exactly what variables are influencing what. And in, in the real life context, you know, there's whole many things that could be affecting it. Yeah. What, but I think that shouldn't be a reason not to study it outright. It should be one where we adapt our methods and find a way to make it work with something that's reasonably reliable, even if it's not perfect. Yeah. We shouldn't say we can't be perfect. It's too messy. Therefore, we're not going to do it at all. It's like, let's compromise. Let's see what we can know to the best of our ability and go from there. Yeah. And that's what I feel like needs to be done. And it hasn't really been done because people, 
it's just hard to design that kind of a study. Yeah, um, yeah. So you, I know you had written a, a new paper about how psychedelics impact the hierarchy on the mind. I'm not going to mm-hmm. begin to tell you that I know anything about what that means. So I would love for you to tell us a little bit about what's this new paper about? Why does it excite you? Yeah, totally. So it, it be, so so to begin, we can talk about the brain. And okay, first, the question is, what does it mean for there to be a hierarchy in the brain, right? And we can say uh, the way it's usually understood is a hierarchy from kind of brain areas that process our senses. So think of our senses as being very concrete. It's there. We can see what we see, feel what we feel, very concrete. Mm-hmm. And on the opposite side is um, very, very abstract. So it's our concepts, mm-hmm. uh, our models, our frameworks for understanding reality and what things are. And you can see how they're much uh, more broad in the sense that, you know, my concept of a dog covers so many different types of dogs, right? Mm-hmm. And in that sense, it goes from concrete to general and abstract. Um, and and, and if, if you think about it in terms of the brain, we take in information from our senses. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, if I'm looking at a dog, all that's happening is a certain light, you know, photons are hitting the back of my eye and that's going into the brain as electrochemical signals. Mm-hmm. So that's all that's happening. And somehow we have to get from that happening to like, oh, it's a dog. And, you know, here is my conception of dogs. Like I like dogs, they're friendly. Oh, what about my cousin's dog? Is this and that? And we have all this kind of stuff built on this very basic information we're getting. Mm-hmm. And so the hierarchy is from parts in the brain that process the very basic side all the way up, slowly up the hierarchy to the most general abstract kind of knowledge-based uh, representations. Does wow. that make sense? Yeah. Con- yes. Yes. What do you, what are you, I mean, I mean, as well as my non-scientific brain can get it. Yes. It sounds like layers of information that we go from first identifying dog and then what dog means to me. And then I like that particular dog and, oh my God, I want to get a dog and like all the different facets of what dog means right is that kind of yeah kind of like that kind of like that i'm sure you're probably like "Mm." (laughs) (laughs) well it gets more basic like think about an object with a bunch of colors and shapes then you're like oh it's an animal oh it's a furry animal oh Oh, maybe it's a dog and then it's like then you get from dog to remembering your experiences of dogs and then the concept of all dogs and then, you know, it's like that from more simple to more complex and abstract. Got it. And so what uh, does, what does, what are you seeing with psychedelics now doing to the hierarchy? Right. So usually our concepts are very distinct from this low level processing mm-hmm. of light and shape and color and whatever. Uh, but in psychedelics, they become less distinct. And this is what I found in the paper, uh, writing some analyses on brain data with people on uh, LSD and psilocybin mushrooms. Mm-hmm. And uh, what seems to be the case is that areas that process the abstract parts of our thinking are now becoming more interlinked and integrated with our low levels processing of sensory information. And so what this suggests is like an, uh, a blurring between abstract and concrete processing in the brain where we might, um, you know, we might think about something and feel like we're able to perceive it because now those areas or concepts are feeding into these sensory areas uh, to a greater degree. And, and also it goes the other way where um, our, our models, our, our beliefs and our concepts and frameworks, which again, at the top of the hierarchy, are now more influenced by the information we're getting. Okay. And so the idea in, in, in a theory of how psychedelics work is that 
this is what leads our beliefs and perspectives to be more flexible and malleable. Got it. Because now they're less distinct from what the information we're getting is telling us. And so we're able to think, oh, like actually this belief is not matching up with this information. Um, and this could be stuff like, you know, even as uh, kind of abstract as, let's say you always believed that you don't deserve love. And then now in this experience, you're suddenly getting information like from your memory, perhaps saying like, oh, what about this experience, this experience, this experience. But you never noticed this before because your belief was so strong. Oh, but I now, see. Now that your connection is stronger, those memories are coming up and changing your belief. You're like, oh, wait, that's not true anymore. And it kind of opens you up. Whoa, that would be huge. That would so, yeah, be that's amazing. The that's the idea that that's what uh, goes on. And my analysis kind of supported that idea that something like that might be going on. Uh, it's very preliminary, but that's kind of the gist of it. Whoa, that is really cool. I can't wait to just keep track and see how that's going and see if that is actually the case. Because to actually rewrite or to actually just see different parts of an old story that have been hurting you ultimately in some form of another that's been keeping you back. That's, you know, it's all stories that we tell ourselves around what we can and cannot do. And so to actually have the ability potentially to rewrite our perception or how we perceive a certain event. Oh my God, it would be a game changer for a lot of people. Yeah. And I think it definitely does occur for some people in psychedelic therapy mm-hmm. sessions, but this is just now finally uh, beginning to suggest a way it might be happening in the brain. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's, but it remains cool. to be seen. It is very preliminary. I have to always say that as a scientist, but totally, totally. I think in the future, it could be very well related to something like this. Awesome. I'm, I'm looking forward to keeping track of your work. That is super cool. My next question for you was around, uh, physical healing. Is there, is there research right now happening around psychedelics and physical healing? So the main window into that is work on inflammation. Mm-hmm. So psychedelics, they work mainly by activating the so-called serotonin to a receptor, mm-hmm. particular receptor in your brain, but it's also throughout your entire body. In fact, there might even be more of it throughout your body. It's in your gut. It's, it's everywhere. And um, what's interesting is activating this to a receptor um, has an anti-inflammatory effect. So it reduces inflammation in your muscles, in, in your organs, anywhere. And there's actually studies in rats where they induce asthma. It's kind of terrible, but they do this. They induce lung inflammation. So mm-hmm. the rats develop behavior that's consistent with asthma. And then psychedelics actually help them relieve that asthma because it reduces lung inflammation. Whoa. Um, and this is crazy because we think of psychedelics working on our mind, on our brain. We don't necessarily think about all the very physical aspects like, oh, it affects your lungs, but it does to some degree. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think people are people are definitely studying it now for things like chronic pain yeah. um, and uh, you know migraine migraine headaches and these kinds of things uh, with the idea that psychedelics can help relieve them by these anti-inflammatory effects. Yeah, I, I could speak from personal experience. Like I've I've any I so I deal with a uh, joint swelling. And when mm-hmm. I, it never, it never, I mean, knock on wood, but it never fails that when I take any, any psychedelic, I can see like if my knee was swollen before, it's like half the size after every mm-hmm. single time. Like I have totally. a very obvious anti-inflammatory impact. And it actually makes me think too about kind of coming back to what we were talking about earlier around visualization, right? So, and, and even like that kind of like that Joe Dispenza territory of, um, he's dealing with a lot of physical healing, right? He, physical healing with the mind. And so if you are also combining visualization practices on 
on physical healing with a psychedelic. You can, you know, like, I feel like there's so many avenues, not just the the physical compound, which it absolutely does, but yeah, then even like tapping into that, the psycho, um, psychoactive aspect to help us then also imagine ourselves as like the healthy being that we are and to actually become it. Yeah, very much so. It's really interesting. Yeah, because psychedelics are amplifiers. They amplify what's mm-hmm. going on, right? As I said, and that could be, so whatever you're doing in a normal state, it can potentially amplify that, make it much more immersive if you if you really get into it. So I think it can be really effective. And yeah, it's fascinating. It gives us this, you know, psychological state that's conducive to transformation, but it's also doing these very physical things to our brain and body mm-hmm. to also help us. So really helping us out on all fronts. I mean, psychedelics are fucking awesome. You know, like, okay, maybe I'm super biased. I know you are too. Um, <laughs> you work in it and I talk about it all t- all the time. Um, all right. My last question for you is the part, because I have such a spiritual background and this is just the part that excites me is how are you guys, like just from that research scientific side, when people are having these mystical experiences, how are you guys measuring it? And what are you making of it? You know, like I understand that I understand the scientific mind might perceive it differently when they hear it. So I'm just curious, like what, what's the process on your end now? Yeah, definitely. So I think, well, for one, psychedelics have definitely made mystical experiences a bit more scientifically respectable mm-hmm. ever since um, there was a study published at John Hopkins University in 2006 showing that psilocybin can you know, reliably induce these experiences, which are very similar to those reported by mystics and saints and you know, yogis, meditators, et cetera. And, um, you know, how, how they measure it is using questionnaires. So it's actually quite, what's the word? Simple. Yeah. <laughs> or like, yeah. I want to say crude, but that sounds too bad. That's too extreme. But uh, basically, like how much they separate mystical experience into different categories or types of experiences based on the religious mystical literature. Mm-hmm. So stuff like, did you feel a sense of unity, a sense of oneness with all things? Did you have a sense of that you're encountering ultimate reality? Like this is how it really is. Did you have a sense of bliss or your euphoria? Did you feel like you're getting in touch with something that's sacred? Do you feel like you transcended space and time? Um, I think there are a couple others too. And like these different categories, and then they take those concepts and put it into a questionnaire. Um, like right from one to seven, I experienced a blurring between myself and the surroundings. I, I feel like I experienced ultimate reality. My experience felt more real than real. Um, you, you know, uh, I lost all sense of space and time. And just like rate these from one to seven. And then if you meet a certain threshold, they say you have a mystical experience. Um, so that's kind of how it goes. Usually. Interesting, interesting. And and I mean, I guess the what's the interpretation? Like, I'm just curious, like a lot of people are seemingly having otherworldly experiences, right? Experiencing something greater than themselves, a oneness. There's a lot of also, um, like from what I understand, like with DMT, for instance, machine elves and entities and beings, hundreds of thousands, right? Of people like all around the world have kind of talked about very similar experiences without knowing each other before a time where it was even publicized. How do you make sense of that? How do we make sense of that? The short answer is like, well, either it's explained away or ignored <laughs> or people don't know what the hell to do with it. Right. Right. So I think um, for mystical experiences, like let's forget about the entities. That's like a whole nother thing for now. <laughs> okay. Like, like experiences of oneness and of bliss. You can't deny that people are having these experiences and that they feel real to them. You know, mm-hmm. while you're in that experience, you're like, this is it. Like I've understood the nature of all things. I'm, you know, I'm whatever. Um, 
and they feel in touch with the higher power and, and whatever. And like the fact that people have that experience is something we treat as a scientific phenomenon of interest. And we study that. Mm, like, the mm-hmm. idea is like, okay, people are having these experiences. Let's test. Does, is it changing their metaphysical beliefs? Is it changing their outcomes? Are they, you know, uh, less, uh, more spiritual after? Are they, are they more, um, are they doing more pro-environmental stuff after doing it? And it's like studying it from a very objective standpoint. Yeah. While also avoiding the question of what does it really mean? Yes, yes, you know? yes. That really makes mean? sense. But like, because at the end of the day, we can't really know what does it really mean. It's, yeah. uh, it's on to your interpretation of it. Totally. And um, there's no objective way to say, oh, this is what it means. It's telling you the nature of reality. And it's definitely not just in your brain. Yeah. And we can't know that. We can't answer that question. It's like yeah. a... That's the that's great mystery. Piece. That's the mystery of life right there. And so yeah, maybe exactly. it's not supposed to be answered. But, but what, coming back to like how you guys are measuring it, like, are you finding that? Are people, what, what are those mystical experiences? Generally speaking, are they shifting people to a more spiritual background? Are they getting more interested in the environment? All of those questions, like, is it actually shifting the way in which they view the world? The, yes, yes, it is. So um, people have shown more pro-environmental attitudes after having a mystical experience. They um, inc- have increases in certain personality domains, such as openness to experience, mm-hmm. which is just like how much you're open to new things, how much you're connected to your fantasy side and um, this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also even in the clinical trials stuff for tobacco addiction or depression or alcoholism, uh, the more you have a mystical experience, the more you get better, the less you smoke, less you drink, uh, more your de- depression symptoms are, are healed or, or go away. Um, so it does seem to be a very important aspect of what makes psychedelics so effective. Well, I love all of this conversation around just psychedelics and what it's doing on the brain, what it's doing for our lives, all of that kind of just the different facets, the the physical side, the mental side, and now kind of hearing what you're saying around how the spiritual side is also creating openness for change and all of these things, like just thrilling, thrilling work. So tell me a little bit more about uh, the projects that you're working on. We'll kind of end it here. I know you've got your own YouTube channel, The Psychedelic Scientist. What are you up to? But where could people check you out, look at your stuff? For sure, yeah. I'm, I'm up, to, up to a lot of things. So um, on, on the research side, what I'm doing these days is I'm working with Robin Carhart-Harris. Who's like <gasps> really? A yeah. Uh, yeah, so I'm working with Robin and others from his team, um, well, his old team at, in Imperial College London, uh, analyzing some of their data with people under the, the brain data, of people under the influence of LSD, DMT, and psilocybin. Kind of analyzing it in new ways, kind of, looking at brain networks, how they change, and looking at some technical stuff around analysis techniques and this kind of stuff with them. So I'm doing that. And then actually my PhD work is actually on the DFAMO network. Um, so that's the main focus of it because I'm here in Montreal. We, mm-hmm. we don't collect psychedelic data here, unfortunately, uh, at the moment. And so I'm doing stuff looking at how the DFAMO network is related to uh, different types of thinking and behavior and how we might understand how uh, DFMO network influences things such as perception, like how do our beliefs mm-hmm. and uh, expectations as encoded by DFMO network uh, impact our experience of life and how does that work in the brain and in terms of psychology. Mm-hmm. So I'm working on that too. Um, so that's kind of my stuff that I'm working on now. Um, got two more years of my PhD, then I'll probably go to University of California, San Francisco to work with Robin, who's there now. Very cool. Um, okay, so stuff. he's over here now? In the states, yeah, he just he just moved there. I think last month. Okay, yeah, because I I, I recall him being back in London, right? 
Yeah. Before yeah. doing so now he's in uh, in the Bay Area long term. So I'm going to go join him and show you. Yeah. You guys going to pioneer the future for us. It's beautiful. Yeah, totally. That's the plan. Um, so yeah, I'm up to that. And then apart from that, I have my YouTube channel, as you mentioned, Psychedelic Scientist, because something I am passionate about is providing solid education on psychedelics and the latest science and the neuroscience in a way that's not super sensationalistic, like a lot of news treatments of it, not superficial. Um, so it goes into deep depth and it's nuanced and, but it's understandable by the lay person. Yeah. So I really like try to find ways to explain things that make sense to people without being overly mm. technical. Um, so that's what I do my YouTube channel, the psychedelic scientists on YouTube and Instagram. And then apart from that, uh, you know, I'm actually, I haven't said this to anybody yet, but I'll say it here. Uh, I'm putting together a psychedelic neuroscience course with, uh, a friend slash colleague of mine, I guess, named Melanie Pincus and mm-hmm. for psychedelics today. So it's a psychedelic neuroscience for lay people and clinicians course that we're playing, hoping to launch uh, next year. Wow. Uh, so congratulations. Yeah. Yeah, totally. That's Thanks, huge. Yeah, under this line of like, of good psychedelics, you know, education. Yeah. That's another thing. Yeah. God, you're busy, but just doing so much important work again. Like I was saying like this, the, I mean, just listening to you again, like all the, all the amazing, I know it's just early days, but the, the potential is just so thrilling and exciting. And the timing is so relevant and necessary right now with every, the state of the world, like it feels perfectly divinely synchronistic that it's all, thank goodness we're going to have some tools as we kind of re-understand ourselves in like the world that we live in now, as the world changes, I feel like it's going to just keep changing a lot. Uh, and we're going to need to keep adapting and finding ways to actually be in a state mentally to actually adapt to change yeah. easier yeah. is going to be very beneficial for us if we're not so fixed on the way it yeah. used to be. Yeah, it's so important. Yeah, especially with the whole COVID thing, everything, obviously the mental health crisis is mm-hmm. blowing out of control. It's insane how it is. So I think psychedelics, even though they're not for everybody, that you know, they have a potential to really help a lot of people, but I think also have the potential to really show us the possibilities of personal transformation and mm-hmm. healing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, tell people that you don't have to be living with anxiety your entire life. You can actually get over it by resolving the underlying thing that's contributing to mm-hmm. it. And that that's actually possible for you. And people just don't believe it a lot of the time or just don't acknowledge it. I find that there's a lot of um, over-identifying actually with like also being sick or, or suffering. Mm. Like it's a, it's a weird twisted thing that we do as humans where we identify with things that actually hurt us and we don't want to let go of those things. I think it starts with first a real truthful wanting to let go of that. And just instead of identifying with pain, because yeah, I think it's almost like a muscle, unfortunately, like a a not the kind of muscle memory we want to identify with pain as uh, just a part of like our identity of who we are. And and just to kind of, like you said, uh, just fall back on habit, habit of like, this is just how I think all the time. Like I just always default to like this area. And I'm like, but you don't have to, that can change (laughs) if you want it to. It, that's the important thing. You have to genuinely will be want be yeah. wanting it and be willing to put in the work to let go of it. Exactly, because it's very enticing. It's very enticing to stick with your model of who you are. You know? Yeah, and it's like obviously, I'm sure everyone has experienced this to some degree. If if you're used to something, if you're used to your life being kind of a shitstorm, then all of a sudden it's very calm and easy. 
you're going to sabotage it. You're going to do something to throw something in the mix. And that's such a common thing people do because it's familiar. You want that familiarity and what feels normal to you. Mm -hmm. And it's unfortunate, but a lot of people's sense of normal is way off the mark in terms of healthiness. And we need to, it takes a lot of dedicated time and attention and consistent work to stabilize a new way of being that feels normal. Yeah. And I do feel like psychedelics, you know, can really help people do that um, and, and show people how that's possible in yeah. general. Yeah. I think it's going to help a lot. I know for myself with, I think the work that it's done and when I can really pinpoint what, what it's been helping me with over this past, like I'd say three years of just really using psychedelics is calming my nervous system down mm-hmm. and my adrenals down because I was always kind of in a state of fight or flight to such a, such a degree, like I just thought it was a normal place to be. Like, I just thought like, oh yeah, that's just, I thought that was an, I I didn't think I was even like anxious or nervous. And I think what it's showing me through again, like psychedelics practice, I have meditation, yoga, all the things is, um, how my, my, uh, central nervous system is so focal to my well being and how much work it actually needed to calm down and stay down to not actually, because it was actually defaulting into a a state of always being in a fight or flight and not realizing that. I think we're all, most of us are kind of there in this type of society. It's so like quick, fast, like got to get it done. There's so much fear, 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 fear of getting fired, fear of not getting there, fear. I'm like, well, everybody's so fucking afraid. Of course, we're all like uh, walking on eggshells a little bit in our own life because we're just walking around with way too much fear than we should. Yeah. Do you know what? I, I largely believe a lot of it is because we live um, for the external. We don't live in a, from an internal sense of groundedness. We did, we're just stimulus response robots just acting in response to what's happening in mm-hmm. our life instead of grounding ourselves inside and acting from that place mm-hmm. of proactivity and, and centeredness, right? Yeah. If we're constantly on social media and saying, oh, I need this. Oh, that person looks cool doing that. So I need to do it too. Then, Mm -hmm. oh, I need to get this job and you get this. And then, you know, go from hanging out with this person to this person and et cetera, and then get home, finally get home and then you're on Netflix. And then, you know, it's like, how do you connect to even who you are at that point? And of course you feel lost. And of course you feel ungrounded and anxious. It's like people don't sit in silence with themselves. I really value that. I value silence a lot. And I spend a lot of time a day just sitting there with my eyes closed, doing nothing um, to reconnect. Cause like, I think a lot of people have lost sense of what it's like to be connected to themselves. Mm-hmm. So they take the external world as their normal. But once you like, even if you go on a retreat or go away and you find a sense of groundedness and you go back into the world, you know what it's like to lose that. Yeah. And then most people are so gone on the loss. They don't remember that experience. Yeah. I think I really advocate for silence and stillness and taking time to do nothing. It is, I think, the thing that we all need. Above all else, it's that. Because if you can't hear yourself, how do you know what you want? Like, it's just very, like, clear. Like, you don't, everybody is like, what do I need to be happy? And I was like, have you asked yourself? You know, have you actually stopped and, like, spend time with yourself and actually ask that question? Because the answer is probably no, because a lot of people, I think, are afraid of what they silence with the hear, like, I don't know, uncomfortable, but I was like, you got to sit with it. You got to sit with it. You got to sit with being uncomfortable. Yeah. So that's like a yoga thing too. Like sit with what's uncomfortable. Um, because like, that's how you grow through discomfort. It's not from things going well. It's actually from the stuff that doesn't feel that good to sit in, but it's always going to be haunting you. It's the monster under the bed. So you look Mm -hmm. at it. Totally. And again, like psychedelics, especially even MDMA and psychedelics mm-hmm. when done in the right context, right preparation can allow you to go there and be okay with it and have space in your consciousness. So you don't get overwhelmed immediately. Yeah. 
Because for some people, it's just really, it's just too much um, for whatever reason. And I think in that sense, having a little aid yeah. such as that, uh, if you're not, um, you know, it could be an aid through a drug like MDMA or psilocybin or something, or it's the mindfulness course that you take mm -hmm. and really do it in a different context. Yeah. But I think, yeah, as you said, so it's always going to be there unless you sit with it yeah. and let that move through you. Right? Yeah. Very cool. What a fun conversation. Perfect. We got a little science in and then we got a little philosophical, which is my jam. So fun. It was great to get to know you. I'm so excited for the work that you're doing. Please keep me posted on the hierarchy, everything that's going on with that. I'd love to, like, where can I, is there a place that we could keep track of your work? Do you publish your papers? Do you yeah, talk about I it? I do publish my papers, but they're probably going to be very technical most okay. of the time. But the best way to keep up with me uh, personally and my research is Twitter. Twitter. So, so my Twitter is mgurnero. So M-G-I-R-N-E-N-E-U-R-O. So mgurnero. Just follow me on Twitter. I'll t I tweet all my research and et cetera. So that's Perfect. the place. Manesh, thank you so much for being here again. I truly appreciate your time. Yeah, my pleasure, Kat. It's a lot of fun. Awesome. And for everyone, as always, trip on this. <laughs>